You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. All of that time, and, and hence all of that attention on these devices, on social media, glued to cable news or whatever it might be, comes at the expense of something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Dr. Charles Chaffin. He is author of the book Numb, How the Information Age Dulls our senses and how we can get them back. All right, Joe, before we dig into our stories this week, got a little quick bit of follow-up here from a listener uh, named John. He writes in and says, uh, hey, Dave and Joe, love the show. Thank you very much, John. Says, uh, thought your other listeners may benefit from a little trick I use when pulling cash from an ATM. These days, most banks allow you to change your ATM or debit PIN via the app on your phone. What a lot of people might not know is that you can use the new PIN almost instantly. Before I pull out cash, I change my PIN to a random number, then pull out the cash, and then change it back to my normal PIN. This might seem like a lot of work, but I'm like both of you, and I don't pull out a lot of cash all that often. So (laughs) this little trick is worth the effort on my part for a little extra security. Keep up the good work, John. Uh, yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah. Just keep, yeah. I mean, basically he's creating a temporary pin. Right. Uh, so if that ATM has been compromised or if there's a camera set up that's looking over his shoulder. Right. That pin's only going to be good for the brief period of time that he's standing there at the machine before he changes it back. Agreed. I say, why not? I say, why not too? If it's worth putting in the extra effort. If you want to do that, that would be a great idea. It's not something I'm going to do. I, I don't. First off, I don't use any banking apps on my phone. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Um, that's number one. I also uh, don't go to the ATM very often at all. I, you know, I'm like like John says. Uh, yeah. So maybe you know, maybe I would, but I still don't have the banking app on my phone. Yeah, I guess I would test it first. Right. <laughs> you know, to be, I mean, use it at a time when it's not critical that you get the money. Because <laughs> right. what if your bank is one of the ones that it doesn't happen instantaneously? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you That's be good, standing good there. Yeah, you yeah. should definitely test this before you do it. But right. if right. it works, it works. And, and you know, you, you, I have no problem with this. I think this is a great idea. If it's, <laughs> this is the level of security you want to do, it's, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, John, for sending that in. Uh, let's move on to our stories this week. Uh, I actually have a two for this week, oh, okay. uh, Joe, because b- both of my stories are on the short side. So I thought I'd double them up. The, the first one is just uh, a link to a, a service that someone sent us. Uh, it's called shouldiclick.org. Mm-hmm. And this is actually uh, the result of a master's uh, thesis project. Really? of a student. Yeah, I don't don't recall what university it was. I know it wasn't Hopkins, so, uh, you know. <laughs> but, this would have uh, been a great research project, a capstone project for one of our master's students. There you go. In the so, MSSI program. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Right. Um, so, basically, uh, this, is, this website is pretty much what it sounds like it is. You can paste in a URL of something that you think is suspicious, and then it runs it through several different levels of analysis, 
comes back and shows you what uh, it ha- what it can gather from remotely scanning the URL, uh, gives you a picture of the website that you would have gone to had you clicked through, mm-hmm. and basically tells you or what 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 with what percentage of certainty should you or should you not click on this link. Uh, I went ahead and tested it with a couple of things. I went through my spam box and okay. found, uh, oh, you know, something for uh, uh, get a loan, you know, low rates and that Viagra. sort of thing. <laughs> well, I did, yeah, I didn't actually didn't see any Viagra stuff really? in there. That would have been a good one. But um, and the first one I put in there, it came back and said you should not click on this. Uh, there's a 75 percent chance that this is an evil twin scam. Right. Which is where someone's impersonating a legit website to gather your information. Uh, the other one I saw was one trying to get people to click through uh, saying that they've been um, – that their information has been used to get unemployment benefits from, in my case, the state of Maryland, which is where you and I both live. Right. Uh, I clicked through on that and uh, same thing. It was uh, uh, an evil twin scam website. wasn't a, a real thing. You so, didn't click through. You actually entered yeah, the, that's the correct. That's right. I, I yes. shouldiclick.org. I put it into website. should I click. Let, that, let it do its thing, run it through its analysis – and uh, came back. So and said, don't click. Yeah. Back so uh, just, you know, anecdotally, I, I can't say I've spent a whole lot of time on this, but uh, seems to be a legit tool from folks uh, doing legit things. They have an API and they seem pretty straightforward about what's going on under the hood. Um, so check it out. It's uh, shouldiclick.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like, uh, if nothing else, a fun little tool to play with. Right. Uh, my second story this week uh, comes courtesy of Rachel Toback, who ah. we've had on our show uh, many times. She, of course, is a uh, a champion social engineer at yes. DEF CON. Um, multi, multi-time champion. That's right. That's like, right. One I don't think our, she even competes anymore because of how she's, good she is. She's just that good. That's it's right. not fair to the other contestants. That's right. <laughs> so, and we've had her on this show multiple times, and uh, I'd safe to say she's one of our favorite guests. Yes. Uh, she posted a thing on Twitter, and before I get to this, let me let me just ask you, Joe, what percentage of Twitter users do you think have enabled multi-factor authentication? Hmm. Of any kind of multi-factor authentication? Any kind of multi-factor authentication. I'm going to say the number is low and go with 15%. 15%. That's All right. my guess. All right. That's a good guess. So listeners out there, come up with a number in your own mind. Uh, Twitter actually released a transparency report, a transparency security report. So hats off to them for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the actual number of two-factor authentication usage of Twitter users is 2.3%. I was way overbidding. And you thought 15 was low. I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> right, right. I'm glad to see that I'm in the small minority here. It's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, a bit surprised by this. I am too. That is very low. Yeah. And Twitter goes on to say that actually that's an increase of of, uh, just over 9% uh, from the previous year. Um, And they say that uh, of that 2.3%, the majority of them use SMS, about 80%. Okay. uh, 30% use uh, an authorization app. Right. uh, And 0.5% use a security key. Hmm. You know, that doesn't surprise me because the security key has a barrier that the other two don't have, and that's an additional cost. Mm-hmm. That's right? true. When that's I bought true. my YubiKeys, I had to pay 50 bucks a piece for them. Right. So, you know, maybe maybe a security app is uh, a better, more cost-effective tool for uh, securing your Twitter account. Yeah. 
Well, Rachel goes on. She she has a whole uh, uh, thread on Twitter that we'll have a link to here in the show notes. And she goes on to uh, with, with her own thoughts and, and observations and insights on this. But then she goes on uh, to say that um, you would imagine that for developers themselves, that number would be a lot higher. I would hope. Right? Those, those of us who are are in uh, – <laughs> so let me get you – once again, I'm going to ask you to guess. Uh, for the um, uh, the de facto JavaScript package manager, it's called NPM. It is the largest package repository on the internet. What percentage of folks who have accounts – on NPM, what percentage there do you think are using two-factor? Now, before I answer this, are they are, are you are you saying these are this is like a code like something like GitHub for JavaScript? Or, yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think people so. A, can upload their own code to this, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, this, so these are these are developers who are you know folks who are actively in the JavaScript development world. They're not right? just using their account to download. Uh, scripts from I don't know, Joe. Okay. I don't know, but let's just say they are they they have greater uh, seemingly you would assume greater knowledge uh, than your mere mortal out on the street when it comes to <laughs> security things by the fact that they're interested I'm in a, a, I'm overthinking this a right. JavaScript package manager. Yes, I'm imagine go, that, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> imagine me overthinking something. Uh, I'm going to go with the um, the wisdom of crowds and say they're also at around two point five percent. Okay. All right. That's well, my guess. They're at nine point two seven. Oh, they're a little bit higher. Yeah. Okay. But still below your original guess of fifteen percent. Yep. Right. My fifteen percent was still an overbid. This is still much lower than I would have thought. Four times more likely than the general population <sighs> to use multi-factor authentication. But still pathetically but low. Still less than ten. <laughs> right. 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 So the question here, I think, is why so low, and and what do we do to get it higher? What do you think? What do we do to get it higher? I mean, you and I have been shouting from the mountaintops that uh, multi-factor authentication is the one single thing you can do to protect your uh, accounts right. and your enterprise and everything from phishing attacks and from credential harvesting attacks. Right. Uh, it makes it makes the penetration, even just by adding the SMS feature, if you have a, a, a an account where the website only offers SMS features, it makes the process of breaking into your account exponentially more difficult. I don't know how how else we can say. It. I mean, maybe uh, a public education campaign, some something. I don't know. What if the platform started requiring it? There if are the platform some... started requiring it, that would be great. Yeah, like um, I, I think Google is uh, is starting to require it for some of their developer accounts. Oh, good. I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw that. Uh, I think it was Google. You know, I think if you if you're talking about developer accounts, you're talking about uh, accounts with with like super user access, then I see no problem in in mandating or requiring multi-factor authentication. Mm -hmm. And if I'm talking about that kind of multi-factor authentication or that kind of access, then I'm going to say, and you can't use SMS. You have to use either uh, an authenticator app or a hardware security token. Right. Both of which Google offers. Right. So, yeah. 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 I mean... (sighs) What, yeah, it's it's interesting to think of what if what if more places required it, mm-hmm. and we simply said in the same way that um, you know there was a time when having a username wasn't enough; you needed to have a username and a password. Right. Well, now what if we just said, you know what, a username and a password isn't enough. You right. have to have username, password, second factor. But uh, of course, that introduces friction, and so the the. The mass market providers don't want to increase friction because that'll mean fewer people will use their platform. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, some surprising numbers there. Uh, We'll have a link to uh, both the uh, report from Twitter, that security transparency report, and also this thread from Rachel Toback. She's at Rachel Toback on Twitter. Uh, That is definitely worth a read there as well. And uh, again, appreciate Rachel bringing this to everyone's attention and certainly caught my eye. So that is my story this week. Uh, Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from Mary Jo Schrade. She is the Assistant General Counsel and Regional Lead for the Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit Asia. Hmm. Big name here. Yeah. And Microsoft gets about 6,500 complaints a month about tech support scams. Hmm. So that's a decrease in tech support scams of about half, right? It's been cut in half. But mm-hmm. these scams are adapting. Microsoft actually con- commissioned a survey Uh, global survey across 16 countries. And there were some interesting results from this. About three out of five consumers had encountered a tech support scam in the last 12 months. Hmm. Dave, have you encountered a tech support scam in the last 12 months? I don't, not not that I specifically can recall, but I would say I probably have above average filtering and shields so that I wouldn't even see something like that. Right, Probably, probably, probably true of me as well. Yeah, uh, I, I, I haven't been targeted by one of these, or at least I don't think I've been targeted by them. Right. Uh, I may have been targeted by them and, and just ignored them. I bet you, if I went through my parents' email, I bet you I'd find one. Right. One out of six consumers was tricked into continuing with the scam. Uh, now, that often led to them losing money, hmm. uh, but sometimes they realized, oh, this is a scam, and they terminated it and they were done. But they did continue with the scam. They engaged with these people, uh, and something bad could have happened, and sometimes it did. Interesting, we've talked about this before, but millennials and Gen Zers, who are categorized here as uh, 24 to 37 and 18 to 23, respectively, had the highest exposure to tech support scams. Yeah. And that's partly due to the changing way in which they're they're coming at it, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay. That surprises me. That That's not intuitive. That I wouldn't have expected that. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that as we go along here. Okay. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. This, I'm just going over the highlights right now. But yeah. one out of 10 millennials and Gen Zers that encountered a scam fell for it and lost money. And that's a lot higher than the older population. And we've talked about this before as well, that when, when an older person is targeted for a scam— they're less likely to fall for it. A mm-hmm. younger person is actually more likely to fall for it. The, mm-hmm. the, the impact, however, of falling for a scam for an older person is much, much larger. And the, this study doesn't address that, but we have other sources we've cited before to talk about that. Among those who continue with the scam, the most common issues experienced during the interaction was computer problems. Of course, these guys are just going to, you're giving them access to your computer, so they're, they're going to do all kinds of bad stuff. Right. Uh, followed by compromised passwords and then fraudulent use of credit cards or debit cards. Okay. Here's the interesting part of this story, I think. The tech support fraud has evolved from being a pure cold calling technique to more sophisticated infrastructure. And they're using uh, affiliate marketers and these people develop professional-looking pop-ups to customers, prompting them to contact fraudulent call centers. Mm. They're also using email, but the, one of the other things you're using is search engine optimization. Mm-hmm. So they're popping up more in uh, in search engines higher higher up in the results. So you're more likely to click on it. Hmm. And what's interesting about that is if I'm someone who's looking like, I, I do a Google search for Microsoft tech support because mm-hmm. I legitimately have a problem. If these scammers through SEO can get their 
right. their fake numbers high enough in the search, that means a certain number of people are likely to believe that that's a legit search result and and click through. Right. Now, here here's what you were looking for. One of the reasons that the younger generations fall for these tech support scams is because they are more likely to engage in risky online behavior. Mm. Uh, and they're also more likely to overestimate their abilities with respect to using computers and the internet. Hmm. By engaging in risky activities, they're talking about like going to torrent sites, going to file sharing sites, going to other, other sites where you can get stuff for free or sideload applications. Those are just bad ideas all around. Uh, but as soon as you go there, you're going to hit one of these, uh, one of these malicious ad networks that's going to send you to a very professional, good-looking site that's going to say, hey, you have a virus and you should call Microsoft. Right. And you call that number, you're going to be directed directly to a, uh, a, a fraudulent call center somewhere. Yeah. Some interesting statistics are in the report, uh, the actual report. This is the, 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 there's a link to the report in the article. We'll put a link to the article in the show notes. The biggest increase, the biggest market share increase for these, for these malicious actors occurred in India, where uh, the percentage of people who continued and lost money went from 14 to 31%. Wow. Which is impressive. They doubled their output in India. Hmm. Um, other places, they're losing, they're losing market share. In the U.S., they also increase their go-through time, you know, their go-through success rate, their their follow-on success rate by going from 6% to 10%. So they're becoming more convincing. Some countries, they actually lost market share. Like in Germany, they they lost about 20% of their market share. In the U.K., it's really down. They went hmm. from 6% to 1% interesting. of people who, who continued and lost money, which is, which is interesting, I think. The U.K. has done a really good job of that. Mm-hmm. On average, those who fell victim to a scam lost about $200. Uh, which is about par for the course, which is something we see. Quite a few victims lost thousands. Uh, one of the other things the scammers do is they will also install malware on these people's computer, allowing them to maintain the access. Right. So this is, uh, they're not just getting your credit card number, charging you for fraudulent services and then leaving. They're maintaining your, their access because that also has value. And if you've, if you've given somebody a malicious actor uh, access to your computer, why wouldn't they install it? <laughs> right, right. Why right. wouldn't they install back end, a yeah, backdoor on this? Yeah, yeah. They put things like crypto miners on and key loggers and all sorts of bad sure. things. Yep, yep. So it's a good report. It's a, it's, a, it's a good article. The article provides a brief overview. The report provides a lot of interesting in-depth statistics with a lot of really good-looking graphs. Nice job, Microsoft. Thank you very much. All right, well, those are our stories for this week, and we will have links to all of the stories over in our show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Do No Evil on Twitter, who tagged us in a post that he made, a tweet, I guess they call it. The kids call it these days. <laughs> uh, his handle is at Do No Evil Man. He posted a picture of a scam email he received. Dave, you want to take it? Sure. It goes like this. Dear beneficiary, I received a transfer instruction from the United Nations bond with the Federal Bureau of Investigation ordered this office to pay 150 victims of scam 5 million United States dollars each. You are listed and has been approved for this payment as one of the scammed victims to be paid this amount. However, we have received a notice of change of account from your representative, Mr. Julius Fletcher, yesterday. In respect of 
to the account received from him. We wish to confirm with you before we proceed with the transfer of your compensation payment to the new account he provided. Kindly confirm the below new bank account as valid and endorsed by you for the wire transfer. The transfer will take place immediately. You confirm the authenticity of the new bank account information provided by your representative, Mr. Julius Fletcher. Yours truly, Mr. Jerome H. Powell, Chairman, Federal Reserve Bank. (laughs) So let me get this straight, Dave. Yeah. (laughs) The Federal Reserve has been tasked with handing out $5 million payments by the FBI. Right. And you know who at the Federal Reserve is the guy who's actually sending out the emails? Uh, who? Chairman Powell. Because right. what else does he have to do? Right. He's just sitting around in his he do, office all day. He doesn't have to mon- uh, you know, monitor all kinds of financial stuff. And, uh, and he's sitting there it. twiddling his thumbs. Right. You know? So <laughs> he's the guy. Right. Absolutely. Makes total sense. Also want to talk about the social engineering aspect of this. They're, yeah. they're, they're trying to say you're a victim of a scam and we're trying to refund you your money. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they, they actually provide you with a set of banking information. I don't know if this is actually Bank of America's routing number, but uh, it's it's interesting that it looks to me like they're trying to get you to write back and go, no, 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 no. Here's my banking information. Right, right. right. Don't, don't send it to the wrong place. Right. <laughs> I want my $5 million. Yeah. Because <laughs> why not, right? right. Why not? Roll why? the dice. Maybe you'll get $5 million. But of course, in this case, the money will be the, the money in your bank account will be flowing in one direction and one direction only. Yeah, and that is away from you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, at Do No Evil Man for sending this to us. Uh, it's another fun one. We would love to hear from you. If you have an interesting scam that you would like us to include in our catch of the day, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Charles Chaffin, and he is the author of the new book, Numb, How the Information Age Dulls Our Senses and How We Can Get Them Back. Here's my conversation with Dr. Charles Chaffin. My research area is attention. And uh, so I started looking at basically how we teach and process complex tasks. And as time went on and we kind of have gotten deeper and deeper into this information age, I, I started to get a number of questions relative to attention. So certainly we're living in an attention economy where our attention is is being pushed and pulled in lots of different directions by devices and, and by this information age. But I also started thinking about one of the probably 12 highlight areas that are part of NUM, and that was about compassion. And I started thinking about the the daily onslaught of breaking news and sensationalism that highlights the suffering of other people. And I started to wonder about how that was impacting me in my own life in terms of compassion for those closest to me. So, you know, if I'm seeing people suffering on TV all the time and hearing about it on social media or whatnot, is that dulling my senses when it comes to the suffering of people closest to me or the homeless that that live, you know, that, that are nearby and whatnot? Um, hmm. And then it's kind of evolved since then, and, and really trying to do a an introspection of 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 the information age and and how we can manage how we can manage it without you know a dopamine fast or or, or something like right. that. Where do you suppose we find ourselves when it comes to 
You know, people's relationships, I'm thinking particularly with their mobile devices and online platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, like Instagram, you know, um, the place that those have taken in our lives and how they affect our ability to focus. Yeah, it's, it's a serious challenge. You know, when you're looking at, you know, at, at a 30,000 foot level, if we are on our devices for three, four, five hours a day and we're on social media, a big component of that, you know, given the role of attention in our lives where, you know, we all think we can multitask, but essentially we can't, right? We we have, our, our brains have not had an update for, you know, 10,000 years, right? They're, they're designed for, for hunting and gathering, right? right? Um, and so all of that time and, and hence all of that attention on these devices, on social media, glued to cable news or whatever it might be, comes at the expense of something. And I, I think we're getting to a point now where we're really starting to see these byproducts happen. Surely we're seeing it when it comes to elements of tribalism and confirmation bias that's happening in our kind of in our, in our entire political culture. But I think we're also seeing it when it comes to things like FOMO. And we're seeing it when it comes to, you know, maybe a realization, maybe not, that these experiences that we're having via our devices aren't authentic. They're what a lot of people write as processed experiences, right? And so these byproducts, I think, are becoming larger and larger. And it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And, and I hope that this book will at least offer folks the opportunity to reflect on the a time and attention that they're devoting to these devices and say, is this working for me or is it not? And, and, and the book is designed to hopefully offer some suggestions to, to fix it. You know, it, it seems to me like one of the issues here is that um, these companies and, and I, I suppose some of the, for example, cable news, they figured out how to press those buttons in our brain. They figured out how to to give us that little that charge of whatever it is that makes us want to stay engaged. And as you say, you know the 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 FOMO element is there as well. Um, it's it, it almost makes me think as though it, it's a, not a fair fight. It isn't a fair fight, and it, it's you know, and, and and to be clear, you know, there's nothing wrong with cable news you know, wanting ratings. And there's, you know, in a large part, it's the whole notion of capitalism and platforms wanting, you know, to deliver as many users to marketers as possible. That's that's the nature of capitalism. So, you know, I, I want to be clear that we're not, you know, I'm not railing against that. However, what I hope that people are saying is looking at it looking at all of this with a more critical eye. So when it comes to breaking news, you know, and there's another, you know, area for dopamine, right? I mean, our brains are designed to detect threats, right? Going back to, you know, right. 10,000 years ago when the, we saw the lion, right? You know, breaking news, there's right. a lion 10 yards from you. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. And so it, we, we basically, it plays on, on that. And, and, you know, to say, oh, you know, is the, is the world ending in two hours? We'll come back after this and we'll tell you, you know, and you come back mm-hmm. and, you know, they've, they've moved on to something else. But if we can look at it with a critical eye and say, okay, what's the motivation of the information source, where it's, whether it's clickbait or breaking news or whatever it might be, or 
It's, you know, push notifications and the dopamine loop that comes from from social media or even dating apps like Tinder. If we can look at it with a critical eye and say, the motivation that they have is not necessarily to inform us, is not necessarily to be a pathway to authentic experiences, but it's to keep us on. And if we can look at that with a critical eye, hopefully we can manage it without it managing our attention. Can you differentiate for us what what exactly do you mean when you describe an authentic experience? So I, I differentiated the book between what's processed and what's authentic. So in a processed experience, it's you know watching YouTube videos, right? It's it's a it's an experience that's been captured by someone else, and I'm watching that, and I'm spending, I'm devoting my attentional resources to that. An authentic experience is one where I'm not I'm not observing someone else perform it, but I'm actually doing it myself, right? I might be, it's something as simple as, as time with a friend or, you know, walking through a field of clover if we're going to be so romantic, right? Or something like that. <laughs> but I'm not living it through the lens of a social media platform and whatnot, but, but it's, it's sensory, right? It's a sensory experience in and of itself. What are your recommendations that, that you make in the book for folks to, to get a better handle on this, to better you know, organize their lives to have more balance. Yeah, you know, I interviewed uh, 62 therapists and, and researchers for this book to, to answer that question. And, and I think it comes down to a couple of different things. The first is, is the question I think all of us have to ask is, and we've kind of alluded to this already, is, is the technology that you're using and all the information that goes along with it, is it, a pathway to something greater, to authenticity, to productivity, to engagement, or has it evolved into a destination in and of itself for you? You know, is social media just this destination point where you're spending most of your time or your, you know, your attention, even when you're with other people, even when you're with other people, you're, you know, at dinner, but you're looking at notifications on Instagram or whatever it might be. So that's the first element. I think the second element really gets into this idea of, I think about this attention economy and attentional spending, right? So are we spending our attention on things that are worthwhile to us? You know, are we finding that, you know, in two or three years, you know, our careers haven't evolved the way they wanted. Our relationships haven't gone where we would like them to go, whether it's with our families or our partners or our spouses, we're not having those authentic experiences, or we're altering some of our own experiences for the for the sake of what I call attention panhandling, right? Meaning, you know, well, <laughs> I, I want to do this Instagram. I you know, I want to post things on Instagram that are interesting. So instead of going on this vacation that I really want to go on, I need to go, you know, climb a cliff or something because this will be really good shots for my friends. Right, right. Yeah. It's much more photogenic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's this, this saying that I really like, sort of, I guess it's a cautionary saying, which is that, you know, be careful or be mindful that uh, on social media, it's so easy to compare your behind the scenes with someone else's highlights reel. Yeah, you know, you, you've got, you basically have this, it, it's a, it's, it's the worst case scenario in the sense that so many of us, you know, curate our lives for the for the sake of social media you know we want to you know we want to post these great things and we want to have filtered photos and and all those different things but at the same time we don't realize that others are curating their lives as well and where mm. this becomes a really serious issue is when we start engaging people on social media that we don't know 
right? Because then we start to say, okay, well, you know, it's it's a rainy Monday morning and I'm on my way to work and I go onto Facebook and I see, you know, John Smith and look at John Smith. He's got, you know, this great vacation. He's always on vacation. He's got this right. great <laughs> rental car and his, you know, his significant other looks great. And look at me, look what I'm doing. But if they don't know John, then they start to, you know, start to say, well, you know, it's an element of FOMO and it's a comparison of, uh, it's a false comparison. But if you mm-hmm. know the people that you're engaging, right, you know, Uncle John, you know, Uncle John posts all these same pictures, but you're like, well, you know, I know Uncle John. I know Uncle John's life and I know the issues that he has. And so there isn't a false comparison. There's more of a, it's more of a reality check and whatnot. And so what tends to happen when it comes to this idea of comparison, you know, we talk a lot about choice architecture, right? You know, we might have 30 or 40 options, but through choice architecture, we can narrow them down. The problem here, when we start engaging and comparing with others we don't know, is actually the opposite. We start questioning our past choices. We start saying, was it the right career decision? Is it the right spouse? Am I living in the right place? Which just, it opens up a can of worms that's, that's really problematic for a lot of us. Hmm. Is cold turkey the solution here? I mean, should we should we dump these apps from our phones, or is there? Do you have tips for folks to to moderate their usage of them? Yeah, I think it is about moderation. You know, I know a lot of people have written about dopamine fasting and you know cutting off. It's just not realistic. I think that uh, you know there are things that we want to share, and there's nothing wrong with sharing if we're using social media, for example. With to strengthen our our existing relationships, right? So, you know, there's a there's a there's a uh, a phrase called Dunbar's number, which basically says, you know, we have a capacity of about 150 people to have relationships, right? Mm. So, you know, we can think about okay, who are the people we really want to engage on social media? You know, whether it's family or whatnot that are far away, and we want to share certain things with them. That's that's okay, right? And maybe you share things, and then you delete the app and bring it back on when you share things or not even use the app. Maybe you just use the desktop version a couple of times a week, right? So I think that's one of the elements. When it comes to, you know, news and information uh, and whatnot, really there's an element of, of transparency that when we think about the sources of information that we have, you know, is this a, is this a viable source, you know? And, and a lot of people talk about, well, I need to, you know, I need to hear from both sides of the political spectrum. Well, if they're both opinion sides, you know, that may or may not be useful for you to be a, a well-informed individual, but is this a reputable sort? What's my what's my diet when it comes to news and information? Or am I just getting it from from social media and and sources that aren't um, that aren't viable? And then finally, I, I would say there's an element of choice overload that we tend to have with lots of different things, right? Whether it's whether it's shopping online or whether it's, you know, I have a chapter on Tinder that looks at, you know, choice overload when it comes to potential mates, right? And if we can if we can begin a process where, you know, there's two different terms that we have in choice, which is, you know, you either are a satisficer or a maximizer. You know, satisficers basically are people who they say, I need this. Here's what I'm willing to spend to get it. And when they find it, they get it and they move on, right? So if I'm, you know, if I'm shopping for a dishwasher, I have my budget, I know what it needs to have. I go go to the store, it has those things, I buy it, I'm done. Contrarily, mm. 
A maximizer basically says, I want to look at all the options. I want to meet all the people on Tinder that could be a potential mate, and then I'll decide, <laughs> right. right? Which, right, of course, right. is a, a fool's errand in and of itself. And the bigger issue is that, first of all, not all the information we find online is reputable, right? If we're reading comments about a dishwasher, we want to hear what everybody thinks about a dishwasher. Some people write comments that you know are, are erroneous or, or whatever it might be. But also the maximizers tend to... Uh, tend to have regret. So they tend to, after they make the purchase, they say, oh, you know, option 63, <laughs> right? Would have been way but better. But at some point, you at some point you got to wash dishes. At some point, you got to watch, wash dishes. So, <laughs> so the, you know, the, the, the basic idea here, as we talk about in the book, is you set a deadline. You say, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going apartment shopping. I've got till the end of the month. I can look at as many as I'd like, but at the end of the month, I need to make a decision. Now, when it comes to Tinder and whatnot, that's a little bit more of a challenge saying, I'm going to, you know, at the end of the month, I'm going to find a date. But you can also say, you know what, I'm not going to meet, you know, two and three people a week uh, off this dating site. I'm going to meet one that I'm interested in and get to know that person and go through that process. So, you know, when it comes to choice overload, there are ways we can manage all of this uh, and, and hopefully get our lives to move forward a little bit. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, the uh, subject of Dr. Chaffin's research is attention. I got, a, I got a joke for you. All right. How many people with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? How many? You want to go ride bikes? <laughs> Wait, that hits a little close to home, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, Dr. Chaffin, what right, do you think, yes. Joe? <laughs> uh, I love that he's clear about the fact. Fact, I say. That we cannot multitask. Yeah. That, that is important. Mm. Multitasking is, I think, the, the belief in the ability of humans to multitask is probably one of the most detrimental beliefs in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people say, I'm looking for a multitasker, they, they, they should not be looking for that. They want somebody who can task switch, not multitask. Multitasking okay. is bad, and it leads to all kinds of mistakes, including you falling for phishing attempts. Mm-hmm. It, it's... You should not be reading your email and doing something else at the same time. Right. Right? That's a bad idea. Right. All the attention we spend on these things comes at the expense of something, and it is impacting us. Mm. I like the term that Charles uses here, processed experiences. Kind of like processed food, right? Mm. Probably not good for you. Velveeta. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right. Facebook is the Velveeta of of life, right? Online experiences. Right. Right, okay. Think critically about every piece of information you receive and the channel through which you are receiving it. Ask yourself, why am I seeing it or why is this person saying this, mm-hmm. right? You, you've really got to think that way about everything, uh, including when people are talking to you. Charles goes on to say, think about the tools you use. And I love this, what he says. He says, are we using these tools to make our lives better or are these tools becoming the destination? Hmm. Right? Is social media the tool you use to get together with friends, or is it the way you get together with friends? Mm-hmm. Right? It's better to actually get together with friends. It's even better, I'd say, to have a phone call than mm. to interact with somebody on, on a social media platform. Mm. I like his terms of attention economy, attention spending, and attention panhandling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a good, good one. one. <laughs> it is a good one. Yeah, yeah. 
look at me, I'm climbing this cliff. <laughs> Charles makes a great point about news outlets uh, and picking your source for the news. He, he said this explicitly, they can't be opinion piece, opinion sources, right? A lot of these news channels, these 24-hour news channels, have segments of their time that is just essentially commentary. That's not news. That is vastly different from news. Sure. Right? It's important not to let other people do your thinking for you. Mm. You have to ingest the news from a, from a news organization and not from that, that news's commentary. Now, I'm not saying the commentary is worthless uh, because the commentary may present to you a side you didn't consider. Right. Right. But don't consider it to be news. But it's, don't consider it to be news. Yeah. And don't consider yourself to be informed right. because of it. Okay. So, Dave, let me ask you, are you a satisficer or a maximizer? That's a good question. Uh, I don't I, – hmm, I, I, I suppose I fall somewhere in the middle because uh, I do do a lot of research before I buy most things. It depends on what the thing – like, I guess – the more expensive the thing is, the more impact the thing will have on my life, the more amount of time I will spend researching it just mm -hmm. to make sure that it's going to meet my needs. Okay. Yeah? Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm definitely more on the satisficer mm -hmm. uh, side of the spectrum. You know, I, I, I have the requirements in mind. I go out looking for it. When I, when I find it, I buy it. Okay. Uh, and it, funny enough, the example that he cites dishwasher purchasing, right, that, that's sometimes I have regrets. But most of the time, I don't. And the dishwasher is one point where I have regrets. <laughs> okay. uh, because I went uh -oh. out and I bought a dishwasher that I thought met my needs, brought it home, and it didn't. But now I have new requirements for the next dishwasher I buy. Okay. Um, but, so you're, you're beating up your dishwasher so that you get to the next one more quickly. Right, exactly. <laughs> but the other thing that came to mind with this was when I, when I built my computer uh, a couple of years ago, I rebuilt my computer and, and was looking around for motherboards, processors, and RAM. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't look at all the options, right? I just looked around for performance and price and made a decision. And I have no regrets about my computer. My computer is great. Uh -huh. I spent, you know, maybe an hour putting, uh, selecting the parts and putting it together, which is also part of the fun. But I didn't do all the research, you know. I didn't didn't read hundreds of articles on which processor I should buy and why I should buy this one. And I just found something that was adequate and bought it. But what if it was an area that you did not have that latent area of expertise on? Mm. Like you have a lifetime of experience yes. with computers. Correct. So you come into that knowing a lot. And I like something like dishwashers is different. Did you do more initial research with your dishwasher than you did with your computer just because you didn't know as much? I did less initial research. Really? Yeah, I went, I went in to— and, Well, but interestingly, you regret that purchase. Interesting. Yeah, it is yeah. interesting. <laughs> Perhaps we've all learned a little lesson yeah, here today, Joe. A little bit of introspection for Joe today on the show. <laughs> all right. Well, let's wrap things up here. Again, uh, we want to thank Dr. Charles Chafin for joining us. The book is Numb, How the Information Age Dulls Our Senses and How We Can Get Them Back. Uh, definitely worth your time. It's a really interesting read. We certainly want to thank him for joining our show. And we want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>